If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 15. As we continue looking at the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He records for us the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is my command, that you love one another. Now these verses that we have just read are are bookended, as it were, by our Lord's command to love one another. The command is given in verse 12. You see it reiterated there in verse 17. And the progression between these these uh, between these two bookends is uh, relatively easy to follow. Jesus' teaching progresses very, very logically and understandably. And so as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under three main points. First of all, love one another. Secondly, Jesus' disciples are his friends. And thirdly, Jesus chose his disciples. So love one another. Jesus' disciples are his friends. And Jesus chose his disciples. So first of all, love one another. Again, this is verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. And the standard for this love with which we are to love one another is that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And this is simply a reiteration of what Jesus referred to as his new commandment back in John chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And the reiteration of that command then in verse 12 of our text then serves as the springboard for what follows in verse 13 and following. Jesus commands his disciples to love one another as he has loved us, and then he immediately speaks of the greatest love possible, namely someone laying down his life for his friends. We read this, and you and I sitting here this morning, we can think back to Jesus and we say, yeah, Jesus, Jesus did that. He laid down his life for his friends. He went to the cross for us. At the time when he spoke those words, that night though, we might well question whether his disciples fully understood what was about to happen. Jesus had been telling them time and again what was going to happen, but they likely did not fully understand the the import of how Jesus himself was going to fulfill these words by laying down his life for his friends. Whether they understood it or not, it's true that Jesus loved his people by laying down his life for them. Later that night, he would be arrested, put on trial, beaten, mocked, scourged. He would wear the crown of thorns on his brow, carry his cross on the road to Golgotha the next day, Jesus laid down his life for his friends, for these men who already knew him and loved him. And he also laid down his life for those who were at that point still his enemies, 
And so we find in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and following, that while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't die for the godly, he died for the ungodly. We find that Paul says in Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ laid down his life for these men who were already his friends, but also for those who were still his enemies. And thus it was that during the crucifixion, he cried out in prayer saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And God was gracious and answered that prayer. He did forgive many of those who were involved in that terrible sin of crucifying Christ. When Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And Luke tells us, Acts chapter 2, that many of those people got it, that the light went on for them. They realized that they had crucified their Messiah. They were cut to the heart and said, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These people who were there that day, many of them had participated, at least, at least as part of the crowd, in the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet, when the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, the conviction of their sin was brought home to them. They were cut to the heart, and they found the way of salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In this and in many subsequent instances of the salvation of the Jews that we find in the book of Acts, we see the fulfillment of, or the answer to, rather, Christ's prayer that he had prayed, Father, forgive them. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus laid down his life for his friends and for his enemies, for sinners, and then rose again from the grave three days later. Jesus did this so that we might be forgiven of our sins. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, as we find in Romans chapter 3. We deserve death for this, for the wages of sin is death. Hebrews 9, we find that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And yet, praise God, Christ became sin for us, became a sin offering for us. He came to lay down his life for us, was made a curse for us by being hanged on a tree in our place, as Paul speaks in Galatians 3.13. And so... It's through his death and resurrection that Christ provided a way of salvation for us. And it is faith then that unites us to Christ. It's by faith that we're justified, counted righteous in the sight of God. And then coupled with this is a repentance, a turning away from our sins, a turning to God. And the two go hand in hand together. They always do. True saving faith, true repentance always accompany one another. One does not go forward without the other. So this is what Christ has done for us. He laid down his life for his friends and for his enemies who would later become his friends. And this then is the standard for the kind of love to which Jesus calls us. We are to love one another as Christ loved us by laying down our lives for one another. And so we read this morning in our unison reading from 1 John chapter 3 that we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. The question is then, how do we do that? Obviously, there's a literal way in which one could lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did that by making atonement for us. None of us can do that, which is why we find in Psalm 49, 7 and 8, that no man 
can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. And so, you and I can't do what Jesus did. We can't provide a ransom for someone's soul, but we could potentially physically defend our brothers, protect them from harm, and there may be a time and a place when we are put in such a position where we need to do that, where we need to physically and literally actually lay down our lives for the benefit of a brother or sister in Christ, to offer our lives so that they might continue to live. And if this be so, it's all right. What better way to die and go to be with Christ than by obeying his new commandment to love our brothers by laying down our lives for them. But, generally speaking, those occasions of actually laying down your life, physically, literally laying down your life for a brother or a sister are going to be few and far between. This has not been the common experience of most Christians throughout the ages. So then, how, how do we actually fulfill this command of laying down our lives for our brothers if we're not literally dying for them. How do, we, how do we lay our lives down? Well, thankfully, John didn't leave us to our own imagination. He told us to give us an example there in 1 John 3. Again, the passage that we read, he says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love, not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, talk is cheap. We can all say, yeah, I love you, but when the rubber meets the road, what's going to happen then? Don't just say that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, we have to show this in practical terms. And we should notice, though, here how, uh, how John particularizes this love. It's certainly true that Christians need to, to love all people, to love all of our neighbors as ourselves. Nevertheless, we have a a particular and special responsibility in regard to loving those within the church, loving fellow believers. And there's a a specificity here. And so Jesus' first framing of the new commandment back in chapter 13 implied this when he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's talking about believers loving fellow believers. And John makes this explicit in 1 John 3 when he speaks of laying down our lives for our brothers, namely our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so there's a, there's a particularity here. And so, but how do we do it? Nevertheless, practical terms, what does this look like? Well, it can certainly take the form of contributing to the needs of the saints. If you, read, if you read the book of Acts, you see believers were concerned for the welfare of one another. And when one portion of the church was oppressed by, by famine or difficult circumstances, there were collections that were taken in other areas and money was sent to, uh, to saints who were suffering. Now, this, of course, is not to encourage or excuse laziness or irresponsibility or anything of the kind. So we're told in... Proverbs 13, uh, verse 4, that the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And likewise, it was the rule of Paul that he passed on to the Thessalonians that if anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. So the point is, is that we're to help brothers and sisters who have legitimate needs. We're to help them tangibly with food, money, shelter, but this is not a blank check either. We're not supposed to be encouraging 
irresponsibility by footing the bill for those who are making unwise financial decisions or who are unwilling to step up and take care of themselves. Now understand, it's a far different situation for those who are unable to step up and take care of themselves in some way or another. There's a great difference between an unwillingness and a lack of ability. These are, these are apples and oranges, or apples and peaches. We have a responsibility to care for those who are unable, but not for those who are unwilling. If a man will not work, he should not eat. And sometimes, even when the financial bank is not broken, so to speak, there are, there are needs that arise. Sometimes there's an emergency that happens in the night and children are sleeping. They need to be cared for while mom and dad go out and attend to the problem. Whatever that is, I can think of uh, at least one situation in the life of our church where, uh, where we had one family that was in a situation like that and a, another church member went over, sat with the kids while, uh, while things unfolded that night and the parents dealt with the problems that had arisen. And, and so we, we love one another tangibly by caring for one another's children in a, in a moment of crisis. Sometimes people need help with home repairs or with moving or you need a ride to the mechanic shop to pick up your car or, or any number of things that you know, are not necessarily huge and earth-shattering things, but a little help along the way from your brother and sister goes a long way, actually. And I've had the privilege of, of seeing much of this happen with, in the church. Likewise, it's helpful for families with, with children to have other folks within the church who, who partner with them in bringing these children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord by doing things like teaching Sunday school, teaching Awana, or having a children's singing time during, during the evening prayer meeting in the summers, or by serving in the nursery. Serving in these capacities, in these ways, are ways of laying down your lives for your brothers and sisters. And certainly you could, you could add to the list. In fact, I would encourage you to add to this list. What I've said is by no means exhaustive. So feel free to use sanctified common sense and find a way to lay down your life, either in the ways that I've mentioned or in other ways that I have not mentioned. But what we all must do is love one another. All of us must be laying down our lives for one another. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that brings us then to our, our second point for this morning, which is Jesus' disciples are his friends. And this is what Jesus says there in verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, inasmuch as a disciple of Jesus is going to follow him and obey him and do the things that he commands, then all of Jesus' disciples are his friends. And notice what he says then in verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, this sounds, this sounds really encouraging, and it is, but let's, let's pull back for a moment and, and think about all of the, all of the dynamics that are, that are going on here. How should we make sense of what Jesus says to us there in verses 14 and 15? Augustine commented on verse 14 by saying, Truly a marvelous statement. Seeing we cannot serve the Lord, but by doing his commandments, how is it that in doing we shall cease to be servants? If I be not a servant in doing his commandments, yet cannot be in his service unless I so do, 
then in my very service, I am no longer a servant. You can see what Augustine was getting at. This all seems so paradoxical. We're Jesus' friends if we obey him, which is to say that we are his friends if, he, if we serve him. And yet, he says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Now, how do we, how do we process this? How do we make sense of this? Well, first, before we look at this particular case, I want to encourage us to, to step back and think a little bit more broadly about our, our, uh, our hermeneutics. It's a big word for interpreting Scripture. And what we need to, to recognize is that there can be a danger as we develop our understanding of Scripture and our theology. There can be a danger of boiling everything down to a single metaphor to the exclusion of all others. Because this is something that the Bible doesn't do. And so just to, just to give another example of this, just uh, consider the condition of a fallen person outside of Christ. Someone who is not repentant, has not believed. How does the Bible describe such a person? Well, the Bible speaks of such a person as lost, Luke 19.10, as dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, and as sick, so Jesus said, it's not the healthy who are in need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Likewise, Isaiah says, Isaiah 1, 6 and 7, The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Scripture may speak in other ways of the lost condition, but these will suffice to make the point. And you may ask me, well, which one is it? Is the man apart from Christ lost? Is he sick? Is he dead? And the answer is that the man or woman apart from Jesus Christ is all of the above, because the Bible tells me so. Now granted, we must not seek to make false conclusions from the metaphor, such as to suggest that the lost man might be able to find his own way back to God apart from grace, or as if to suggest that since a man is described as sick, Therefore, he is not also dead, and therefore he can use his own free will and muster enough strength so as to come to Christ or to do that which is pleasing to God. The metaphor of sickness must not be used to suggest such a thing, because Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Paul says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8, 7 and 8. And so we must not seek to draw conclusions from the metaphors used in Scripture in such a way as to contradict some other truth that is taught in Scripture. And at the same time, we don't have to settle on one metaphor to the exclusion of the others. And we shouldn't settle on one metaphor to the exclusion of the others, because to do so would cut us off from, from the richness of Scripture. Scripture uses all kinds of metaphors to, to convey the truth of these realities to us. And the same applies here in this case in John 15. And so what are the people of God in relation to him? Are they servants or slaves? Well, they are. For Jesus says in Luke 17:10, so you too, when you do all the things which you are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves, and we have done only that which we ought to have done. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.22 that he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. All of us in this room who were called to Christ were called while we were free. 
That means we are Christ's slave. Are we the friends of Christ? We are. Jesus says so right here. Are we, even more importantly, the sons of God and joint heirs with Christ? We are. And so we find in Romans 8, 14 and 15, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of a slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And so which is it? Are we servants, slaves, friends, or sons? Well, if you are in Christ, the answer is yes. You are all of the above. To borrow the words of Augustine again, he said, For just as there are two kinds of fear, which produce two classes of fearers, so there are two kinds of service, which produce two classes of servants. There is a fear which perfect love casts out. And there is another fear which is clean and, and endures forever. Since, therefore, he has given us power to become the sons of God, let us not be servants but sons, that in some wonderful and indescribable but real way we may, as servants, have the power not to be servants. Servants, indeed, with that clean fear which distinguishes the servant that enters into the joy of his Lord, but not servants with the fear that has to be cast out. Or again, he says, one, therefore, who is a good servant can be both servant and friend. And indeed, this is, this is what we find in the Bible. Such a one was Abraham. Though the Lord spoke of Abraham in Genesis 26, 24, when he was making the promise to Isaac, he referred to Abraham as my servant, Abraham. Yet, the Lord also speaks of Abraham as his friend. We saw that in that passage that Nick read for us in Isaiah 41, 8. Also, King Jehoshaphat spoke to the Lord in prayer and referred to Abraham as your friend forever. He didn't say BFF, but he did say your friend forever. He was talking about Abraham. Clearly then, Abraham is both a servant and a friend. And though Moses is not specifically designated as a friend of God, the comparison was made in Exodus 33:11, where we are told, Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And yet the writer to the Hebrews says that Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Hebrews chapter 3. The point is, again, that one who is a good servant can be both a servant and a friend. These are not mutually exclusive identities. And we are both if we do what Jesus commands. And the distinction between being merely a servant as opposed to being a friend who is a servant is found in what Jesus says in verse 15. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. The one who is a servant and only a servant is not brought into the knowledge of his master's business. In some respects, the servant only works from the neck down. He is just told what to do, and he does what he is told. Now, back in the day when I worked at UPS, I used to use that line sometimes, that I was only paid from the neck down. And even my supervisor sometimes felt that he was only paid from the neck down. And so sometimes he would say to me, Hey, Neil. And what that meant was I'm in a situation where I don't understand, this doesn't make sense to me, but I'm just doing it because I've been told to do it. That is the servant. He doesn't know the master's business. He doesn't, doesn't know the plan, really. He doesn't get it. But Jesus calls his disciples here friends because he has made known to them all things which he has learned from the Father. 
That is, all of the truths which the Father sent, uh, had sent the Son into the world to proclaim. Jesus had shown them God the Father. Jesus had taught them the, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, explaining the parables. The parables were mystifying to the crowds. But Jesus would bring the disciples in and they would, they would ask him, what do these things mean? And Jesus would explain. Jesus had told them how he was going to die and rise again and so on. He would often, we often find that he would, he would call the twelve to himself and he would, he would lay out the plan. doesn't mean they always understood it, but he would tell them what the plan were, was. And he had, as it were, taken the disciples into his confidence. And isn't that what we see in the case of, of Abraham back in the Old Testament? When the Lord came to Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, he said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then he told Abraham that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was very great, and that he was going down to take a look. And then we have that account there in the latter portion of Genesis 18 where Abraham barters, as it were, with the Lord for the salvation of the city and gets it down to the number 10, that if there were 10 righteous men, the Lord would spare the city. The Lord didn't find that many, and the city was destroyed. But the point here is that in being the friend of God, there is an intimacy in which greater revelation is given. We know the Lord's business as his friends. We know the things which Christ has received from the Father and has given unto us. We know them because the Spirit inspired the apostles to write the Scriptures. We know them because the same Spirit that inspired the apostles to write the Scriptures has opened our hearts to believe and to understand the Scriptures. And thus Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was that God would give them a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened so that they might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. We come to understand these things as believers, as the friends of Christ. These are the things that we grow in as believers, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you are a believer, I want you to ponder just for a moment the great condescension of the Son of God in this. And also, along with that, your blessed condition as the friend of Jesus Christ. He who was in the beginning, was with God, was God, not only became man and went to the cross and rose again for you, but he also calls you his friend. You who were once his enemy and in danger of judgment have not merely passed out of that enmity into some kind of neutral zone, whatever that might be. You've not merely become his servant. You have become his servant, but not merely that. You have now become the friend of Jesus Christ. Jesus has passed on to you the things which he received from the Father. You have heard them and read them from the Word. You have understood them by the, the working of the Holy Spirit. By his divine power, the Lord has given to you everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called you by his own glory and excellence. That's what we find in 2 Peter 1. And you have gone from the status of a traitor to that of a friend. 
to him who is the king of kings, lord of lords, who has all power and authority at his disposal. Now, people count it a great honor to be a friend of someone who is important and powerful. People might think it's neat even if they have simply spoken with someone who is famous and important. But Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, calls you his friend if you obey his commandments. Think about Christ's condescension in this. And think how richly blessed you are. This is the kind of friendship that should make you want to serve him all the more. And if you're here this morning and your life is such that any real objective investigation of it, one would have to conclude that you actually don't obey Jesus as your general mode of operation in life. If you live as if you neither fear God nor respect men, then I want you to recognize that you are neither Jesus' friend nor even his servant. You're serving your lusts and your sins instead of Jesus. And if you continue on in that and you do not change then one day you will die in your sins. And in that day, you'll be without hope and without God. You'll pass from this world in a state of condemnation and will be condemned forever. Now, all of us deserve this. Every one of us does. The thing is that some of us have come to Jesus for forgiveness and trusted in him, that his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to pay the debt that we have incurred before God because of our sins. We've come in faith and have turned from our sins and now seek, by God's grace, to obey Christ in everything. And if you're here this morning and you're not a friend of Jesus, I invite you to come to him. As his gospel is preached this morning, Jesus himself invites you to come to him. He's gentle, he's humble in heart, and in coming to him you will find rest for your soul. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. If you have more questions about what it means to trust Jesus, you can talk to me or to another Christian whom you know here after the service. We would love to tell you more about this. But we pass now to our third point for this morning, which is found in verse 16, and that is that Jesus chose his disciples. Jesus says in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. The disciples didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. Now, in the context of the chapter, Jesus is obviously speaking to the eleven. And in their case, it's clear enough, Jesus chose them. Just think back to the, the narratives in the Gospels where we read about Jesus calling his disciples to follow him. Matthew 4.19, we see Jesus calling out Peter and Andrew and saying, follow me. Two verses later, he calls James and John and they follow him. Matthew 9.9, Jesus passes the tax collector's booth and sees Matthew and says, follow me. We see the designation of the twelve in Mark 3, where Jesus went up on a mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve so that they would be with him and he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Jesus himself expressed it this way in John 6, 70. Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Christ had chosen these particular men. He had chosen them for a particular task, namely that they would go and would bear fruit, and that their fruit would remain. And indeed, they did. These men did go forth. They went forth preaching the gospel in obedience to the Great Commission. 
They produced good fruit by their proclamation of Christ, and that good fruit remains to this day. How do we know? Just take a look around you. We are here today reading the words of Jesus that were written down by one of the men who was in that room. We are here today reconciled to God through Christ as the result, humanly speaking, of the work of those men. We're here today worshiping the triune God because these men bore fruit and their fruit remained. And you'll see there how at the end of verse 16, Jesus attached a promise to what he had said that in whatever they would ask the Father, he would give them. And this is a theme that recurs here in this discourse uh, as Jesus is speaking to the disciples before he goes to the cross. He's encouraging them to, to go to prayer. In going and, and doing the work to which Christ had appointed them, they would certainly encounter great difficulties. They would have great need of going to the Father in prayer for help. And inasmuch as they were abiding in Christ and his word was abiding in them, they could ask for what they desired and they would receive it because they were seeking those things which were in accordance with the command and will of God. So these men did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. And while this certainly applies to their outward calling and specific calling as apostles, there is also another level at which these words are applicable, and not only applicable to them, but to all of Christ's people. And that is the great biblical truth that in the grand scheme of things, we did not choose Christ, but God the Father chose us in Christ. Now, certainly those of us who follow after Christ did make a choice to follow him. Just as these 11 men made a choice to follow Jesus, right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John made the conscious, rational decision to put down the net, get out of the boat, and start walking, putting one foot in front of the other, following after Jesus. Matthew made the conscious, rational decision to get out of the tax booth and follow Jesus. And in a sense, the uh, same is true of all of us who are followers of Christ. All of us who follow after Jesus at one point came to the re realization that we needed to follow him, we needed to stop are sinning and follow after him. And so we did. We repented. We turned to Christ to follow him in faith and in obedience. And so in that sense, there was a choice that was involved. In that sense, we chose to follow Jesus. But we need to take a step back from there. Why did we make that choice? Why did we repent and believe? Why did we choose to start following Jesus? Why did we do that when other people who heard the gospel just as we did did not make that choice? Were we somehow better than them? Because we, at that point, chose better than them? Of course not. Of course we weren't any better than them. We chose to start following Jesus because God chose us, gave new life to our hearts by his spirit, and in that new life, started following Jesus. Why else would Paul say it this way in Ephesians 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And what this means is that all of those who are in Christ were chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world. And you were chosen so that you would be holy and blameless before him. You didn't choose God. God chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit 
fruit that will last. And of course, as we've already seen here in John 15, this comes about as you abide in Christ, as a branch abides in the vine. You were predestined from eternity to be adopted as a son in the family of God through Jesus Christ. These are God's purposes. This is ultimately God's plan and not yours. Now, it became your choice to follow Christ after the Holy Spirit regenerated you and, and gave you. You chose Christ because you had no other choice. A heart that is living and alive naturally chooses to follow after God and can do nothing else. The Holy Spirit took away your heart of stone which was dead in sin and gave you a heart which was tender to the things of God, a heart which was made new and therefore longed to believe and to obey. And in that new heart, you started obeying God. You started choosing the ways of God because you could do nothing else. And we speak of this doctrine of God's election or of God's choosing in our confession of faith as a church where we say we believe that God in time graciously regenerates, sanctifies, and saves those and only those sinners whom he in eternity past purposed in election to save. That being perfectly consistent with the free agency of man, he orders all things, all the means in connection with the end. That it is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable, that it utterly excludes boasting and promotes humility, love, prayer, praise, trust in God, and active imitation of His free mercy, that it encourages the use of means in the highest degree, that it may be ascertained by its effects in all who truly believe the gospel, that it is the foundation of Christian assurance, and that making our calling and election sure demands and deserves the utmost diligence. Now, certainly, much could be said about the doctrine of election, but this morning I simply want to say two things. One, by way of encouragement to believers, and one, by way of encouragement to non-believers. By way of encouragement to believers this morning, I want to draw your attention to that line in our confession where it is said that the doctrine of election is the foundation of Christian assurance. This doctrine is really that the foundation of Christian assurance. And I think the context here in John 15 is, is helpful. Just put yourself for a moment in the disciples' shoes. Wouldn't it be encouraging to you if you were sitting there that night, were listening to all of the things that Jesus was saying, and you heard Jesus say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Wouldn't it be refreshing, wouldn't it be encouraging to be reminded that this, this was not your plan, this was Jesus' plan, that he chose you, that he appointed you for a work and for a purpose, and that the fruit that you would bear would remain. And that's encouraging. These particular men would have been able to think back to their earlier experiences with Jesus and being able to see Jesus' plan already being worked out. After Jesus had sent out the 70 in Luke 10, we're told in Luke 10, 17, that they returned with joy and were saying, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. In other words, they had seen Christ's plan worked out. Jesus sent them out to preach and cast out demons and all this. They came back when it was done and said, Lord, it was just like you said it was. They were subject to us in your name. What a comfort and encouragement it would have been to them to hear from Jesus' own lips that the fact that they were following him was ultimately his doing. Part of his plan, not their own. Their plans can quickly fall apart 
Not Jesus' plan, though. Jesus' Jesus' plan is sure. It's going to work out. And this, in a similar way, therefore, should be encouraging to all of us who are believers. What a comfort it is to know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. It is God who has begun the good work. It is God who will carry on the good work to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is God who has chosen us. It is God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It is God who will sustain us and confirm us firm until the end. This past Wednesday, in our inductive Bible study, we were in Psalm 121. And that psalm ends with God's long game provision for believers when it said, The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. And so, believer, if you're a Christian here this morning, you are in Christ because God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. And we have the promise that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It all works together. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called them, he justified them, he glorified them. It all runs together in one endless, seamless stream. And so, believer, you can rest in Christ. Submit to him, believe him, obey him. He's going to accomplish his purposes. Rest assured in him. Don't rest in yourself. You rest in Christ. Rest in in his purposes. The doctrine that Christ, uh, that God's people are chosen in Christ is certainly a doctrine that gives us assurance, gives us comfort. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want to encourage you this morning also. I certainly don't want to encourage you to continue in your unbelief and continue on in your sins. Not at all. But what I do want to do is to encourage you to come to Christ by the promises of the gospel. And that is because the doctrine of God choosing and calling particular individuals to himself is never intended to make us stop and hesitate and wonder whether God has has chosen us. The invitations of the gospel are general, and they are given to all and any who will listen to them. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. We read in Revelation 22, let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. And so friend, don't hesitate. Don't wait any longer. Turn away from your sins and believe today. The invitation of the gospel is for you. Listen to it, believe it, and come to Jesus. And in the end, your salvation will prove that you repented and believed because God first chose you. And all the praise and the glory will go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning and we praise you for your great sovereignty and your great love with which you have loved us. We thank you for uh, the sure and certain plans that you have, that we need not wonder whether or not your plans will come to pass. But you are completely sovereign, that you are sovereign over all hearts and over all things. All power in heaven and on earth is yours We praise you that you have loved us. That you have loved us so much that we might be called the friends of your only begotten Son. We pray, Lord, that you would help us. That we would obey him. That we would be his servants and his friends. We praise you for your great mercies towards us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.